bringing you up to speed on the latest in conservation, science, and responsible hunting in Canada. Hey everyone, it's Mark Hall, and you're listening to the Round Canada Podcast. So I found this article in Wired Magazine. It's actually from May of this year. Uh, Wired Magazine is kind of a... um, high-tech, um, digital business, um, focused magazine. And there was this article written by, uh, a writer named J.M. Ledgard, and it was published May 12th, 2021. And the article is about interspecies money. So it's, it's got kind of a conservation focus here in wildlife. It's about giving wildlife money. So the the author writes, the greatest failure of the digital age is how far removed it is from nature. So he talks about, uh, you know, kind of all the things that are happening to, you know, the rate of species extinction, habitat loss, uh, you know, all these various things that we've covered, you know, in different venues ourselves, that's impacting wildlife all over the world. And the author goes on to write, non-human species are unseen by the market economy because no money has ever been assigned by them. So kind of the premise here is, you know, and you probably get this, you know, uh, if it pays, it stays. Um, You know, the economy is based on, money and profits and people invest in things that'll give them more money and money will grow through investments and business ventures that'll make people money. And because wildlife and various aspects of biodiversity might even be an ecosystem, uh, doesn't have money and contribute to the market economy per se, other than when people use um, products from the environment. So uh, nobody's really paying for ecosystem services, um, you know, or services that, uh, you know, things like um, pollinators, native pollinators, you know, that um, fertilize, uh, pollinate crops, those sorts of things. Nobody really pays for those, those ecological benefits. And so, Nature uh, is kind of disregarded in the market economy, so to speak. And so the world's economy sort of marches on impacting uh, nature. So the author writes, in order to preserve the survival of some species, it is necessary in some situations, usually when they are in direct competition with humans, to give them economic advantage. An orchid, a baobab tree, a dugong, an orangutan, even at some future point, the trace lines of mycelial network. All of these should hold money. So the idea is uh, to create interspecies money and assign money to individual animals, herds, uh, types of animals, those sorts of things. Uh, it's kind of like cryptocurrency. So you're not, not like, like physical paper plastic money or whatever. It's like a cryptocurrency, a digital currency, and it would be held in a special bank. Um, And then when humans recognize, 
um, the services provided by nature. Um, they see a particular individual animal that they know has a certain amount of currency and it gets reported, uh, the data gets reported. That's sort of the, the, what they're after here's data about what exists in nature. Uh, and this is a way to preserve nature and preserve species from going extinct as if they have value, monetary value, and you can get paid by finding them, spotting them, reporting them, or benefiting from their services. Um, then what the author is saying is the individual species, uh, the herds or the or the um, you know the type of animals or whatever, would then make a payment to a community, a country, uh, an individual that's recognizing or doing something to recognize that it's there or to. Um, uh, recognize the serv service that the species is providing or recognize what that species needs to survive so the, so the species, the animal or whatever would make a payment. Obviously some sort of algorithm would probably be controlling this exchange of cryptocurrency. So it's kind of bizarre. Um, the article says the identity um, serves as a digital twin which in legal and practical terms holds the money and releases it based on the services the life form requires. Um, so the identity would be like what individual animals, herds or types of animals uh, would be given identity uh, and a digital twin that would hold a certain amount of this cryptocurrency interspecies money. So it's kind of neat thinking, um, you know, the world runs on money, um, you know, nature's protected, usually has an economic value, or nature's exploited because it has an economic value. So this idea that the elements of nature, wildlife, would actually have their own money to pay humans um, for helping them out and protecting them and, and making sure that they have the things in their habitat that they need to survive is it's kind of the concept. Um, it's kind of a cursory uh, review of, you know, this author's full proposal about interspecies money. He's got a name for it in the bank of life or whatever's where all this interspecies money would be held. But if you want to dig into this more, Wired Magazine, uh, May 12th, 2021. Now, the one problem I do see with this, and I tend to look at everything with the lens of a hunter sometimes, is you got individual animal X out there somewhere doing its thing and individual animal X is incredibly wealthy, uh, is doing really well paying out people. Um, they're getting an income off of this individual animal that's got a lot of interspecies money in the crypto bank of life. And a hunter harvests that animal. You can imagine the shit show that would unfold after that. Imagine if Cecil the lion had a billion dollars of interspecies cryptocurrency uh, and all the people and countries and community programs that that lion was making payments to. <laughs> um, 
So maybe there's a few things that need to be kind of worked out there. Um, but anyways, interesting concept. So speaking of lions, predators, there's no lions in British Columbia, Canada, but there are wolves and they have been actively managed, i.e. controlled, called in caribou recovery zones throughout the province. So part of the effort in trying to recover the federally endangered woodland caribou in different places of British Columbia is uh, reducing wolf populations and wolf predation on the endangered caribou. So currently right now, the province of British Columbia is looking for input from the public uh, and interested groups and citizens on its five-year uh, plan for caribou recovery and whether continued predator reduction will be used to support the recovery of woodland caribou in the province. So the province is asking for your input, and I do believe you can be anywhere and provide input on the survey. You don't have to be a resident of British Columbia. Uh, I just, it's going to ask you, you know, where you live and whether you live in actually one of the caribou management zones. So it's pretty easy, whatever it takes five, seven minutes, something like that. Um, so the public input's going to inform the province's uh, decision-making um, process. So the feedback from the survey will go to the statutory decision-maker that will have to um, consider what the public thinks of uh, continued predator reduction as part of the caribou recovery strategy in the province. Uh, it's open from the 15th of September to November 15th of this year. Uh, I will put the link to the survey in the show notes, but if you want to find it, just Google uh, Caribou Predator Reduction BC Government Survey, something like that. Um, it's the, the, the province of BC has a website called engage.gov.bc.ca, and it's usually where they put these types of public input type um, comment things. So, But I'll put the link to it in the show notes. So... Let your voice be heard, whether you are for continued predator reduction based on the science um, that has come out of understanding its role, which it is being shown to um, help some caribou herds, or if you're against it, uh, it's your chance to have your voice heard. One of the things that's cool about the website is they do have a tremendous amount of background information uh, about the endangered woodland caribou herds about what's been happening with the predator reduction program, uh, some of the things that they've been uh, finding, observing, seeing, recording, some of the science published uh, around it. So you can actually go onto that website, read up on the topic first, um, and make yourself informed, and then go fill out the survey. So I think that's pretty cool. So onto a topic I've been covering for a few episodes now. And the continuing story of a park gone to the dogs. Specifically, Stanley Park has gone to the coyotes. So as you know, since December last year, up until now, there's been 45 some attacks by coyotes in Stanley Park. Um, it was getting all controversial. You know, a few... Uh, coyotes had been removed by the BC Conservation Officer Service. A toddler was attacked 
uh, earlier uh, in the springtime. So in early September, Stanley Park was closed and the province uh, sent professional trappers in to live trap um, coyotes in the park. They were approved to take up to 35 coyotes. They were live trapping them, then they would transport them out of the park where they would be humanely dispatched, probably shot with a 22 somewhere uh, outside the city and away from things. So the park was closed. Um, the cull uh, was started on the 15th of September. There was a vigil for the Stanley Park Coyotes held in downtown Vancouver, where about a dozen people showed up to um, have a vigil. I don't know if it was a candlelight vigil. Um, they had protest signs and stuff uh, over the coyotes that were going to be um, taken out of the park. So a little tacky in my opinion, especially when these public vigils are normally held for really tragic situations where people have lost their lives. Um, I think it's a little distasteful to be using that concept that's generally used to honor the tragic deaths, particularly murders of individuals. Anyways, uh, about 12 people thought it important enough to hold a vigil for the coyotes that were um, going to lose their lives in Stanley Park. So uh, September 21st, the park was reopened. They put an end to the cull. Uh, they caught a total of four coyotes in the cull in September, which brings a total of 11 animals that were removed out of Stanley Park since uh, last December or January. Not very many. They were, were looking at what was going on during this capture program, and they figured that there was not as many coyotes in the park as originally um, estimated. So they decided, they figured that they caught four, um, and there were still a couple, I guess, from camera traps. They were still a couple wandering around or, or whatever, and they decided that was, that was enough, and they reopened the park on September 21st. So this is, this is kind of interesting. So basically feeding coyotes is kind of coming to the surface as being like the, the primary cause of these coyotes being super aggressive towards people. Uh, the Vancouver Parks Parks Board has previously said part of the problem is people feeding the wild animals. The necropsies that have been done on the dead coyotes, um, necropsy is an animal autopsy, um, did not find any toxic substances in the animals' bodies that had been culled and they didn't find rabies. So toxic being uh, narcotics or alcohol. So, um, But the Parks Board said on Friday, which probably was a couple of weeks ago or 10 days ago, uh, the board announced staff had removed a thousand kilograms of garbage and planned to install animal-proof garbage cans in an effort to keep aggressive coyotes at bay. So I guess there was all these garbage cans and stuff in the park that weren't even animal proof. Uh, probably squirrels and stuff could get into them. So that and people feeding the coyotes, um, purposely feeding them, leave little stashes of dog food. I saw pictures it looked like and, you know, stuff like that. Um, so the executive director of the animal rights group here in British Columbia, the fur bearers, um, the executive director's name is Leslie Fox, 
and she was uh, quite upset about the cull. And uh, there was a statement published in the media that's, that uh, Leslie said, we don't have a coyote problem, we have a governance problem. I, I get what she's getting at. Technically, you do have a coyote problem. Technically, the problem is coyotes are biting people. That's the problem. That's the thing that everybody wants to solve. The problem is the thing that people want to make go away, not recur. What the causes of that problem are, are feeding, you know, these types of things. So there's a difference between the problem and the causes of a problem. So, um, so when she said we don't have a coyote problem, we have a governance problem, what she is meaning is it's like, it's not the coyote's fault. Coyotes are just doing what coyotes do and people are messing the coyotes up by feeding them. So I, that's what she means. But I mean, when we say we don't have a coyote problem, sort of like technically we do have a coyote problem. Anyways, um, so she was upset that nothing had been done about all the garbage she basically uh, criticized the Vancouver Parks Board when they removed this thousand kilograms of garbage, um, sort of saying it's too late now because these coyotes were become food habituated, were biting people, and they had to be uh, killed. It's better than doing nothing and allowing the problem to continue. Uh, at some point, you know, people understand what's causing a problem. It becomes of a scale that people want to fix it and some stuff that yeah maybe in hindsight should have been done but it wasn't it is being done so um hopefully that'll prevent these things from happening in, in the future on september 21st the bc conservation officer so the day the park opened the bc conservation officer arrested two people and seized their vehicle for allegedly feeding coyotes so the charges are probably going to be sending them to court for a judge to decide on um, the penalty under the Wildlife Act and the state of their motor vehicle seizure. So be interesting to see what happens there. Um, pretty firm compliance and enforcement action by the BC Conservation Officer Service right out of the gate when the park opened again hammered the first people that they uh, caught feeding wildlife. So uh, good on you for doing your job. Um, that's part of what the BC Conservation Officer Service deals with is problem wildlife, um, but also trying to get people to comply with the Wildlife Act, which is an offense to feed uh, dangerous animals in the province of British Columbia. So basically any of the carnivores, that's against the law. Now, there is a new individual, I'm not sure if there's a group because they say we, uh, I just recently read a story, so there's this, I don't know what you want to call them, not like a vigilante group because they're not um, doing anything to people, they're, they're not doing like Western justice or anything, um, but they're calling themselves like the warriors of Stanley Park or, the, or something like that, uh, we are the warriors. Uh, in the park. And so there's people going around in the park now confronting people 
that they're that that are feeding wildlife so they're going up and sort of like shaming them like you know don't feed don't feed the wildlife you shouldn't be feeding them so that's going to be interesting what happens there i see some conflict headed uh, apparently the report that i read is people that have been doing this in the, the park before calling out people for feeding wildlife even squirrels and i think it started with ducks people feeding ducks these people were going into the park calling out individuals doing that um, have been verbally abused uh, one of the individuals the uh, warriors as they call themselves uh, was called satan because she was telling the person to not feed the ducks so pretty serious stuff going on in vancouver uh hopefully there isn't any like um major conflicts or brawls or something that happened there with um these members of the public policing um you know and, and um shaming people that are feeding wildlife so it's a fascinating story and look into how the public looks at wildlife and wildlife management in a big urban center. Somebody wrote into me uh, earlier about the stories and was just kind of like, you know, too bad in Vancouver. It's like you got coyotes are biting people. Um, you need to live with it because the person was kind of upset that you know, a tremendous amount of these, the, the support um, or lack of support for the grizzly hunt in British Columbia, quote unquote, came out of the lower mainland of British Columbia. So it's kind of like, it's retribution. It's like there, now you got these biting grizzly bears or biting coyotes in Stanley Park. And uh, the rest of us out there in the province have to worry about getting mauled by grizzly bears. So um, anyway, so I mean, there's kind of um disgruntled people on all aspects of this story um everybody's mad at everybody holding vigils for coyotes mad at the bc conservation officer service mad at the parks board blaming them blaming people for feeding um you know blaming people because it's in stanley park it's in the middle of vancouver blaming the need to remove and kill coyotes that more coyotes are just going to come in so on and so on it's just a big cluster of people being angry at each other uh, it's too bad but it's an interesting microcosm look into the world of wildlife in the heart of a major metropolis um, a little different way of looking at things than maybe folks in the rural hinterland have uh, that live with wildlife all different types of wildlife so kind of a different different way of looking at it one of the things that i find super interesting about following this whole coyote in stanley park story the continuing story is it's shocking you know what's more shocking than the number of ta attacks since december and what's more shocking than the number of coyotes that were involved and that were actually removed what really blows me away is the number of experts on coyotes that have all of a sudden come out of the woodwork and a relatively seemingly sort of small issue um, small number of coyotes 
you know, that were removed, 11 people being attacked, um, you know, is not a small thing. 45 is a big number. A toddler is a big number. Um, you know, eventually something serious was going to happen probably to a child, uh, you know, if this was allowed to go on. But, you know, the whole frenzy, media frenzy around this thing has brought out experts all over Western Canada on coyotes and coyote feeding and uh, everybody seems to know what's going on and what's causing it and why everything's being done the wrong way. Uh, it's kind of interesting, had no idea that there were that many coyote, coyote experts in Western Canada. I guess maybe when a controversy hits the media and you want your voice heard and to get a little bit of publicity, then the best way to do that is to all of a sudden be an expert and then just offer your personal opinion. Because that's mostly what I see in, in these stories are just people giving their personal opinions on what they think. Not a lot of quote unquote experts interpreting evidence and data. In Ontario, um, the Ontario Federations and Anglers and Hunters um, recently sort of put out a position statement or policy statement on some upcoming changes to the migratory federal migratory um, bird act uh, to do with hunting. So one of the priorities of the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters has been establishing a sandhill crane hunt in Ontario. And you know, uh, probably from last year that Alberta um, had its first sandhill crane hunt. Um, numbers were really strong. They selected some uh, specific management zones to keep the sandhill crane hunting away from some of the um, swan migration routes. But uh, so Ontario is also in the same position. Um, credibly robust uh, populations of sandhill cranes that are, I think are part of the Sandhill Crane Flyway that goes down into the Mississippi, I believe, which is like just millions of birds. And um, so the eastern population, yeah, that's the, not the, so they're, the Sandhill Cranes in Ontario are part of the eastern population, uh, which in the state of Ontario, as they said, uh, OFA said, is currently above the province's management objectives of 30,000 cranes. So uh, sandhill cranes get into agriculture areas and I guess they can wreak a lot of havoc on certain types of crops that will re-sprout from the tubers and roots. So sometimes the sandhill crane hunts are um, also partly a management tool for uh, crop depredation. And the Sandhill Crane population has been growing at an annual rate of just over uh, 4% uh, a year. Uh, and the fall count uh, is roughly around 94,000 cranes um, in Ontario or passing through Ontario. So they feel that that number is conservative um, and the numbers of cranes uh, in the eastern population um, can definitely support a hunt uh, in Ontario and so Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters have been uh, presented that information to the Canadian Wildlife Service in consideration of adjustments of the hunting season for next year. Um, they 
Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters in their proposal have also commissioning or, or asking the Canadian Wildlife Service to consider removing mute swans from protection under the Migratory Bird Convention Act. So in North America, there's the Migratory Bird Treaty and both the United States and Canada have a Migratory Bird um, Act, um, federal act to help implement the agreement, uh, the treaty. And so OFA is asking that mute swans, which migrate from between both countries, be removed. And the reason is, and I did not know this, the mute swan is not native to North America. It's an invasive species. It's one of those ones that got loose from people having pet swans in their little ponds on their estates and acreages, um, and they become a big problem. I guess probably out there competing with a native waterfowl. So they're asking that they be removed from the Migratory Bird Convention Act uh, in Canada. So basically it would sort of take all hunting restrictions off the table. Uh, it's an invasive species and then essentially it's like, you know, we can take as many as you want, uh, whenever you want sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, bit a bit of stuff coming out of Ontario advocating for more uh, migratory bird hunting. So a couple of months ago, the Federal Minister of Fisheries and Oceans Canada, um, Bernadette Jordan, made an announcement. And she sh was shutting down nearly 60% of British Columbia's commercial salmon fisheries. There was a total of, in, in British Columbia, in the Fraser system, there's a total of 79 fisheries that were unsustainable. And they were identified as being part of the closure starting in 2021. And she said it would not likely reopen for many years and the commercial fishy, fishing closure was needed to restore wild salmon uh, to abundance. Um, she said the minister said it was a difficult decision, but many populations were on the verge of collapse. So recently, the federal minister of Fisheries and Oceans Canada announced that DFO was going to be opening a commercial fishery for Fraser River pink salmon and it would last till it would be closed now it was uh, going to last until uh, September 18th so this has brought about the ire of a lot of West Coast conservation groups saying that uh, the federal um, Department of Fisheries and Oceans is backtracking on its commitment um, to close most of the commercial salmon fisheries as um, a strong-handed measure needed to save endangered um, salmon and steelhead stocks. So they figure they, they're accusing the government of backtracking on that. So the opening up a commercial fishery on the Fraser River pink salmon, um, people have been saying, conservations have been saying, puts both the endangered sockeye, coho, and steelhead salmon 
at risk of dying as bycatch with the pink fisheries. So what was a positive step in the early summer is now seeing some backtracking by the federal government and allowing some commercial fisheries to open up unexpectedly. There apparently wasn't a lot of notice that this was coming or public consultation. So um, a commercial fishery on just pinks um, could have a serious impact on a number of these unsustainable fish populations in the Fraser. So in early September in Yoho National Park, um, in it's one of the mountain parks in British Columbia, kind of borders, um, you know, in the cluster of Jasper and Banff and Kootenai National Park, there's a little national park called Yoho, um, just outside of Golden, British Columbia. A hiker found a dead grizzly bear, a dead female grizzly bear, not a very big one, 70 kilograms. And Parks Canada, um, the hiker reported it, so Parks Canada went in and uh, scooped up this dead bear because they wanted to do a necropsy on it um, to see what caused its death. And they found that the grizzly bear had been killed by a mountain goat. So grizzly bears um, will target mountain goats uh, as an act of prey species. Mountain goats will sometimes come down into areas that make them very vulnerable around licks uh, where they're crossing from one mountain range to another. They sometimes have trails that go right through the valley bottoms to get to the other mountain range on the other side of the valley. Uh, grizzly bears pattern this and they jump on goats and, and kill them. Um, do fairly successful. I know a biologist that was working on a project in the southern Rocky Mountains uh, documenting uh, natural licks in the Rocky Mountains where goats uh, go to and use so I guess they could be documented and, and protected and he said one of the licks that they went into he said was just littered with goat parts all over the mountainside around this lick and it just stunk like dead rotting carcasses and he said the hair on the back of your neck was just standing straight up because it was just you expected a grizzly bear to come roaring out at any second and um, treat you like a mountain goat so when a grizzly bear attacks a mountain goat uh, they go for the neck and the head the defensive mechanism of a mountain goat is to curl its head down and then jar its head kind of in a J motion um, backwards. So it takes advantage of its curved horns, which are incredibly sharp, if you've never seen the tip of a mountain goat horn. And so basically these two strategies put grizzly bear on the side of a goat going up onto its neck and its head, and the goat that's curving its head back, and so it drove its horns into the armpits of the grizzly bear, which most likely punctured lungs or heart or sliced um, a major artery uh, or, or vein. So pretty dramatic. Um, if you spend a lot of time out in the mountains, you know, like hunters do, uh, I've probably seen all kinds of stuff. I remember finding a black bear that had been on an elk carcass they got run down by a grizzly bear and killed, had its skull crushed in, 
you know, people have found uh, cougars, you know, that have been all ripped apart by two toms fighting. Like, this is all the type of, like, this dramatic stuff in the wild that hunters and trappers and stuff actually come across, you know, probably almost on an annual basis. The, uh, the nature is metal thing. Um, we see a lot of that kind of stuff. To the general public, this was a big deal. It was a big story. It's all over Canada in the news about this goat uh, killing this grizzly bear. So it's kind of interesting. I guess people are educated on this about, you know, the serious, you know, predators that grizzly bears can be on, on ungulates. It's good to know that, um, that they do do that. It's also one of those things, too, I get more and more concerned about these individual animal stories uh, of one lone single animal kind of becoming this uh, huge national story. And it tends to, in my opinion, kind of tends to take away from broader conservation issues for species at, at you know, uh, at an important scale or species that are actually more important. As you know, I've talked lots about stories about, you know, the the issues over the death of, you know, like a single wolf or something like that somewhere and all this fervor that's created uh, when, you know, people don't really care about, you know, um, you know, other endangered species or endangered fish or an endangered bird or something like that. It's, you know, kind of all these charismatic megafauna, usually carnivores uh, that tend to make the news. So, so this story kind of fit into that category for me, kind of like, yeah, cool. But I'm like, yeah, so what? Like, <laughs> um, been there, done there, seen that kind of thing. And just worried that these types of single animal event type stories just continue to feed into this um, compassionate conservation type ethos that's building in, you know, the, the, in society nowadays where people are more concerned about like one single animal, one single event than they are about an entire species or an entire continent or an entire guild of of wildlife species i don't know if you've seen in the news there over in the uk the whole thing about geronimo the alpaca or whatever he was like that's an example of like you know cecil the lion one single anim animal right um tends to blow up in the news and scientists are struggling to get the population the the you know the the rest of the um population of of citizens in the country to pay attention to really important you know wildlife issues so the other part of this story that kind of feeds into um, things that bother me about how the national parks uh, are managed in kind of, you know, sterilizing or cleansing, you know, what nature does a little bit. So they took this grizzly bear, um, did the necropsy on it to figure out, you know, just making sure that like nobody purposely killed it or it was poached or, you know, whatever, it didn't die at the at the uh, the hands of people in the national parks. Uh, it wasn't, so parks was good. This is, you know, nature doing nature's thing in the park. But they removed the carcass from the area, did the necropsy, but they didn't put it back. They didn't want that carcass there to lure other wildlife, which would have attracted other bears, to the area because people hike there. I assume is the reason. 
and it's unfortunate you know nature nature does what nature does and a goat killed the grizzly bear the grizzly bear died where it died it laid where it laid and my way of looking at things that's where it should have been put back was the very spot that it was picked up because then the whole chain of natural events of what that grizzly bear carcass was going to attract and feed sure maybe they took it way back in the mountains of the helicopter and dumped it somewhere and the same things are going to happen but you know just my ethic and way of looking at things but it was sort of like no where that grizzly bear died whatever scavenger was in the immediate area of that was kind of entitled to that gift of the goat uh, as opposed to something you know way on the other side of the park you know other scavengers getting it just that's just the way I look at things that's sometimes why I take uh, my trimmings and scraps and stuff from animals that I harvest and I actually take it back out to the very area where I harvest it because I just kind of feel like that animal grew was growing there by that particular little habitat or ecosystem and that's where it should go back to um, so yeah kind of um, strange story mountain goat kills grizzly bear don't see that one every day so of course we had the federal election since the last time I did a podcast um, Liberal Party got back in and as you know the Liberal Party uh, is the one that's behind the gun control legislation um, two bills um, the whole big controversy around the ban of uh, scary looking guns um, these assault uh, weapons they call them you know the controversy around those is people use those for recreational sports shooting you can have a firearm that's uh, let's say a 243 caliber it has a maximum of three rounds in the magazine but it looks like quote-unquote an AR platform 243 caliber and you can have a 243 caliber in a walnut stock traditional long rifle hunting with three rounds in the magazine and they want to ban the one that looks like the ones they use in the movies so that's that's kind of what's going on uh, all of the federal parties supported the bills that were currently out there except for the conservatives the conservatives were the ones that said they were going to do away with the bills and they apparently backtracked at the beginning of the election saying that they would they would keep the liberal ban on the 1500 various assault weapons um, but they would revisit what was considered an assault weapon uh, which some critics were saying well then that means they could actually um, reverse you know the ban on almost all the 1500 um, so anyways that was kind of a minor point of the election uh, mostly that information was uh, out there for voters when it was um, direct questions that were asked of all of the election candidates by uh, organizations like the Ontario Federation of Anglers and Hunters they were specific questions that they wanted answers to for their members to consider in voting one of the things that came out just before the election was there was an article produced in a magazine online magazine called uh, Western Standard and the federal minister of public safety bill blair um, that was kind of championing or leading uh, these uh, gun gun control laws that were coming in 
his department commissioned a public opinion survey uh, that was um, delivered to his department, I think, in March, this, this report. So they surveyed about 2,000 Canadians. And in this survey, they found out that 25% of households in Canada own a gun. But they asked, they specifically asked the survey respondents about hunting rifles and shotguns. And more than a third, in fact, 39% of those respondents said rifles and shotguns should also be illegal. 63% of the survey respondents said handguns should be banned. And so that was based on 2,000 Canadians nationwide uh, and 20 focus groups in all regions of the country. It was a, a survey, public opinion survey, that was done by a company called um, Environics Research. And the Federal Department of Public Safety paid them almost a quarter of a million dollars for that survey. So on May 1st, 2020, um, under the uh, bill that the federal government passed, some 1,500 high-powered uh, weapons in the province were banned, and the owners have until next year to surrender them to the police under a potential buyback program. In this survey that was just that I've been talking about, one of the things that it showed is that an overwhelming majority of Canadians were unaware of firearms restrictions proposed in the last parliament. 89% of the respondents in that survey said they didn't know anything about the new measures that the federal government of Canada had announced to address gun-related violence. Shocking. One of the things that the survey also showed is that the less familiar people were with the current firearms restrictions in the province, like what it takes to lawfully own a firearm, the more likely that they were to be in favor of banning rifles and shotguns. The more educated and knowledgeable the individual was about what it currently required to own a firearm in Canada, the more likely or the more support they had for people to continue to own hunting shotguns and rifles. So a uh, huge gap in the public being in Canada, being informed or knowledgeable about the current gun legislation in the province, gun ownership, um, what new gun uh, regulations are on the table. Uh, um, as hot a topic as this is in the media, I was pretty shocked by that survey um, to find out how little uh, the, the survey respondents actually knew about um, what was currently on the table for uh, gun control and the existing gun control laws that this country already has. Kind of scary. Um, some pro-firearms groups have criticized uh, the Liberal government for actually even commissioning that report in the first place, um, sort of accusing them of like, why did you, why do you need that information? Like, why do you need to ask Canadians whether or not they think hunting shotguns and long rifles should be illegal? 
So some skepticism about the intent of um, the new liberal government in what they were going to do with that information or why they wanted it. The election platforms of all the candidates um, prior to the federal election, um, from what I saw, kind of all some way, shape, or form basically said, like, no, I mean, hunting's part of Canada, and um, we're not here to take your um, shotguns and rifles that are used for hunting. A lot of promises are made before elections. My thoughts are, in five, ten years from now, when 39% of Canadians that said that they think hunting rifles and shotguns should be illegal has now risen to 51% of Canadians, and there's an election, what do you think some of the election platforms could possibly be for 51% of the vote of Canadians? Scary. It's trending that way. I think hunters and firearm owners in the province need to do a lot more of just educating about what you do with your firearm, what hunting's about, what recreational sports shooting's about. We have Olympic sports, you know, um, that use firearms. And just do it in a non, you know, um, sort of U.S. Second Amendment style type tactics, right? Like just get out there and start talking to people about firearms and firearm ownership and, you know, what different types of firearms are, what calibers are, you know, all of these sorts of things and get people understanding that, you know, two firearms that might look completely different have exactly the same ballistics capability, exactly the same number of of ammunitions in the magazine, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, take it upon yourself and just start talking to people about firearm ownership. It's not a taboo subject. 25% of households in Canada own a gun. Um, start trying to spread knowledge about, you know, what it takes to own a firearm and that it's not all bad or dangerous or and it's not just a free-for-all for gun ownership in this country. So try to help the cause. So there was a study, um, a, an article by a team of researchers from Canada, the United States, and Greenland who study polar bears. And um, so they concluded um, that it's rare but possible for polar bears to use tools when hunting walruses. So as far back as the late 1700s, there's been documented stories of polar bears using rocks or large blocks of ice and hurling those at walruses and smashing in their skulls to kill them rather than go jump on the back of a walrus that's got the big tusks and the whole mountain goat, you know, getting killed in the grizzly bear scenario. Uh, polar bears you know, are worried about that as well. There's been documented stories up in as late as the 1990s of Inuit hunters in the Arctic, um, you know, reporting that uh, they're finding polar bear kills with skulls smashed in and big blocks of ice and stuff that are blood covered that, you know, that look like the polar bear, like smash, you know, smash the, um, the walrus's skull in using um, a block of ice or, or a rock, which they would consider a tool. Anytime an animal uses something um, other than its own uh, means, claws or teeth uh, is considered the use of a tool. 
which for a long time was considered as only to be a trait of Homo sapien was the use of tools, but we know primates use tools, we know birds use tools, uh, all sorts of things. So, so yeah, it's uh, very possible that the scientists think that polar bears could be could be doing this. Part of what they're basing this on is they've had polar bears in research captivity, uh, where they've done research on their ability to use different items sticks, poles, all sorts of things to like reach and get, you know, food off of a high area that's out of reach, like just seeing what the bears were capable of doing. And apparently the polar bear's ability to grab an object and shoot it like a basketball was the most precise tool that a polar bear could handle and consistently and accurately knock food down off of high ledges and stuff so that it could get at it. They're incredibly good at uh, and accurate, I guess, of like kind of this basketball shooting type idea, which is why the scientists said that it's highly plausible that uh, polar bears in the wild uh, could do this uh, with blocks of ice or rocks to kill um, walruses. Crazy. Uh, so there's an emerging issue around polar bear, polar bears that are hunting um, using these uh, blocks of ice and rocks. And some are observing that the polar bears uh, are starting to launch these blocks of ice um, at walruses from incredibly long distances, seven, eight hundred up to a thousand yards. Um, they're launching, you know, basically long range um, shooting these blocks of ice at the walruses. And um, there's a possibility that the polar bears, with climate change affecting them, uh, are learning to use trail cameras that are left behind by researchers in the Arctic um, to monitor uh, the walruses and to potentially they may even have some abilities to use remote mobile devices to le release these these blocks of ice uh, when they're triggered by the motion sensors of these trail cameras so all of this sort of emerging issues about polar bears using long-range blocks of ice possibly you know using some some high tech to to kill walruses um, is got the committee for fair chase hunting by wildlife um, meeting at the, at the latter part of this year to discuss um, the potential of bringing in polar bear hunting regulations in 2022 to limit um, the technology and the distances that polar bears can uh, hurl these launches, uh, these blocks of ice at, at walruses. And that wasn't part of the story. But it seemed funny. Anyways, folks, you're up to date on what's going on around Canada, and we'll see you in the next episode.